G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Well, hello and welcome back to Who Killed Leanne Holland. This is episode 19, A Happy Ending. G'day, Graham. How are you, mate? Very well, thanks, Jamie. It's a beautiful part of the world we are in today. I hope the same can be said for where you are. Mate, truer words have never been spoken. It's springtime, it's sunny, it's just magical here, so I can't complain at all. But I hope all our listeners have got some good weather wherever they are. Yes. And thanks again for joining us. A point of clarification needed, if you have been following this podcast, you would have listened to episode 16, right? The redacted review, perhaps a year ago or so. If you are new to the podcast, you may have listened to it in the last week or two. That episode was really just an overview of the review. We received it after waiting 10 years and gave broad brush comments to it. Recently, we decided we needed to drill down and put the review under the microscope. That is the plan. And... A word about episode 18 as well is needed. We discussed the contents of the car boot and mentioned items that were in different positions when comparisons were made between the photograph and the video. In the photograph, if you have a look on the Facebook page, there's a picnic rug that has been pushed, is scrunched even, between the spare wheel and the side of the car. Graham Stafford pointed out what the work experience student wrote when the scientific officer first opened the boot. Yes, I remember that. I remember a multicoloured checkered picnic rug laid across the base of the boot section of the car. Well, that makes a mockery of the evidence the scientific officer gave at trial. In relation to the maggot found on the Wednesday and the reasons why you didn't record it or photograph it at that time, was there any reason that you didn't do it? At the time I examined the car on the Wednesday, I only made cursory notes of my examination. I bundled the car up closed it up and made sure that it was sent back to the scientific section for further investigation. I did not wish to disturb it in any way until I could get it into controlled conditions. Bit of feedback. We're very happy to be listened to across the world. And we have to give a shout out to Catherine. She's from Canada and she is the self-proclaimed number one fan of Who Killed Leanne Holland. So thank you for listening, Catherine. And I hope we live up 
to your standards. Also, we received this email recently. Really looking forward to seeing this whiteboard. This could be very helpful. I am a retired sergeant of Victoria Police and thought this would be a good idea to fill in some of my time. I'm about to erect a large whiteboard with all particulars of the case, including maps, faces, those that are available, etc., with the aim of deciding who I think the piece of shit is. Looking a lot like Pete, though, on first reading. I'm yet to purchase your book, but that's just a matter of time. Promise I won't borrow one from the library. Bloody command. I hope you're doing well. Now to get into a happy ending, Jamie. Let's do it. We did mention this before, but it is important and it needs to be said again. Queensland Police had to have an outcome from the police review that Graham Stafford was the killer. Any other outcome was just simply too painful to consider. Imagine fronting a media conference and saying, well, guys, we got it wrong. Graham Stafford did not commit the murder. Can you imagine the outcries, Jamie? Yes. There would have been cries for blood and scalps, not to mention the embarrassment to the police service. Loss of face, careers would have been lost, people may have gone to prison, and other persons would have started clamouring they too were wrongly convicted. And not to mention that compensation would have had to be paid. And how much do you pay someone to compensate for losing 15 years of their life? How do you even put a number to that? And more importantly, what would the QPS do about finding the real killer? Exactly. I am not kidding when I say a happy ending was the only outcome. Anything other than that was just too painful to consider. There was only ever going to be that outcome, Jamie. Well then, how do you engineer a happy ending, Graham? To my mind, it came about in one of three ways. Number one, the review team found further evidence implicating Graham Stafford as a killer. They then released the report to his solicitors and other interested parties because they had nothing to hide and they were proud of their investigations. But alas, that didn't happen. Number two was the review team eliminated as many claims by the defence as they could. They ignored the rest of the claims They then found further evidence implicating Graham Stafford, but that evidence may not have stood up to scrutiny by pesky investigators and solicitors. So the best thing they could do would be to not release the review. And the third way, which is really bizarre, but who knows, there's been so many bizarre things in this case over 30 years, the review team were handed the first paragraph of the final report along the lines of, Our investigations have found Graham Stafford was the killer and acted alone. And the review team were then told to fill in the blanks. And if that was the circumstances, they definitely would not release the report. But the QPS will cry out the investigation was peer-reviewed by a New South Wales detective and the CMC, which is the Crime and Misconduct Commission, for those who don't know. Well, that's correct. It apparently was. How much supervising did they do? How much investigating did they do? And how did it work out for them with the maggot evidence in the wheelie bin? And as you'll hear, the noble evidence. After the review was completed in 2012, then Commissioner Atkinson refused to say what the outcome was and refused to release the report. By the way, that was the same Commissioner Atkinson 
who stated in 2010 that the review report will be open, accountable, and available to all. But it is none of those things. Exactly. So the report remained buried until 2014 when a senior officer leaked the outcome to a friendly journalist. What was the motive with that? And then the Queensland Police had no option other than to announce the result. And then the review outcome was finally reported in a media conference in 2014. And incidentally, it's worth watching that media conference on YouTube. It goes for about 16 minutes. The dynamics of the conference are quite interesting. You have three of the most senior police in the Queensland Police Service, two in full uniform with regalia, shoulder to shoulder, united, authoritative, assertive. Each speak to the positive outcome of the review. They're committed. The viewer is left in no doubt. The executive of the police team confidently reaffirmed the results of the review found. It seemed to me the Queensland Police claimed the moral high ground and asserted they were right all along and they got their man and then closed the fall. And just to remind you, no one, apart from the police, have seen the review report. No one knows if the contents are accurate or not. It was and is an untested document, which begs the question, why not release it? Of course, Channel 7 journalists have seen the report. They boasted about it. They did not and could not fact-check the report. They ran a TV program based on the hope that the report was factual. That's right, Jamie. Despite the journalist's code of ethics that they must confirm the information they report on, truth and accuracy. And on that, how did Channel 7 get that report? They claimed it was leaked to them by someone who had a sense of justice. Of course, they're always going to say that. How did you get the report? And let's face it, they made a lot of money out of that TV show. It was sold to overseas networks. I think it's a fair question. How did they get that report? And I think saying, oh, it was released by someone who had a sense of justice just doesn't cut it. Especially when no one else has seen it. Like, There's got to be some sort of paper trail, right? Exactly. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. Like, exactly. There's got to be some sort of yep. guidelines here. Whoever is involved on the Queensland police side, had to shut down the ongoing, never-ending conversation about the case. It was just too problematic. Were they protecting pedophile Pete? Remember what the retired superintendent of police had to say about him, giving a glowing reference. I do remember that. By Channel 7 obtaining it, they achieved their result. No media would go near the story after that episode ran. And eventually, in 2021, after a lot of public pressure, QPS released a redacted copy of the review to Graham Stafford's solicitors. So there's 370 pages of 531 pages, which is around 70%. We cannot review the entire secret police report, but we can review those areas of the review that have been released. In 2012, then Commissioner Bob Atkinson, upon completion of the secret police review, wrote to the DPP recommending Graham Stafford be retried for murder. We have a ridiculous situation where Graham Stafford stands accused of murder. His solicitors cannot gain access to the report accusing him of the murder, but a commercial TV station has a copy and is making money from broadcasting their programs. But it's all about justice for Leanne. You just can't fathom it. How is that fair in any way? That doesn't pass the pub test, Jamie. No. 
We have posted the five points contained in the Commissioner's letter on the Facebook page. Atkinson needed to persuade the DPP to prosecute Stafford. He would have listed the most significant evidence against Stafford to obtain a retrial, right? Right. And the most compelling piece of evidence first, correct? Correct. But it's a good thing he didn't mention the wheelie bin. Yes, that would have been interesting. Atkinson listed five points, which police said proved conclusively Graham Stafford killed Leanne Holland. And we will deal with each point separately. One, peroxide in the hair. Two, blood on the shower curtain. Three, a pattern on the left buttock and thighs of the victim. Four, a written record by a work experience student of the maggot. And five, full meteorological records to prove time of death. After a two-year full reinvestigation, police still had no eyewitnesses, no motive, no confession, just further circumstantial and forensic evidence, apparently. And that word pops up a lot in this case. They apparently saw a maggot. Graham Stafford apparently helped her dye her hair. She apparently died on the Monday. And the list goes on. And of course, as we know, the DPP refused to prosecute Graham Stafford. Personally, I believe a lot of police would have actually been relieved when the DPP refused to prosecute Graham Stafford again. I agree with you. It would have meant giving further perjured evidence. Pedophile Pete would have been paraded before the court for the world to see. We would have gotten to hear the denials that he was at both crime scenes. We would have gotten to see the man in the black at the crime scene. Was it Pedo Pete, as the evidence suggests, or was it a former police officer, as the QPS suggests? The police review report would have been picked apart brick by brick in an open court. So what was the compelling evidence Atkinson provided to the DPP to prove Stafford was the killer? And the police witnesses, Jamie, would not have got the free pass they received at the trial in 1992. The defence at this time would have been prepared and waiting for them and would have ripped them to shreds over some of the dodgy evidence they gave initially. Like you said, I think they were relieved there'd be no retrial. Leanne Holland had applied peroxide bleach to her hair, but had not been able to fully spread the bleach through her hair before the process inexplicably stopped. This has been confirmed by microscopic and chemical examination of Leanne Holland's hair. It was Leanne's stated desire to bleach her hair on the 23rd of September 1991 with the assistance of Graham Stafford. The key words there are the process inexplicably stopped and stated desire to bleach her hair on 23 September. That theory only has legs if it could be shown the murder occurred on the Monday and occurred in the bathroom of 70A Alice Street, couldn't it? And we dispute both those claims, and I think the evidence supports us. At the time Leanne's body was found, her normally blonde hair was seen to be luxuriant, rich auburn in colour. So said the pathologist. And the photographs show her hair to be a rich red colour. Police believed her hair had been dyed, but that was shown to be incorrect even before the committal proceedings. But here it was, 20 years later, 
Police are still claiming her hair had been dyed. Actually, no longer dyed, but instead peroxide had been added. But they had to do that. To admit anything else severely complicated their case. This was a cornerstone, a foundation of their case. The murder happened on the Monday, and it happened in the bedroom, and the body was hidden in the boot. If any of those points fail, Graham Stafford wasn't the killer. There was no dye in her hair, it was blood. The chemist found it rinsed out underwater. So the review of 2010 concluded it wasn't dye in the hair, but it was peroxide that had been put through her hair. Do you even put peroxide in blonde hair? I'm not a hairdresser, but I wouldn't have thought you'd do. In Atkinson's letter, and in the executive summary, the phrase inexplicably ceased is used. This was not actually what the scientist said. Surprise. It doesn't say that at all. The scientist wrote, the process was interrupted. The phrase inexplicably stopped only appears in the executive summary of the report. The executive summary makes the scientific evidence seem much more damaging than it actually was. The next problem for it to be relevant is it has to be proven the peroxide was applied on the day Leanne Holland died, and the scientists could not say that. They could only say peroxide was applied sometime before she died, but could not specify a day or a time. But the peroxiding is only an issue if you assume Leanne was murdered by Graham Stafford in a psychosexual rage whilst adding peroxide to her hair. This is a ludicrous situation and suggestion considering Graham's completely unblemished record both before and after jail and his exemplary prison record. And then you have the Leo Freeney factor, an outstanding human, gave evidence and told the facts despite enormous pressure from the Queensland Government to walk away. Leo was the Queensland Government's Chief Forensic Officer at that time. He had been involved in more than 4,000 investigations. And if you remember, he was referred to as Queensland's Quincy. Leo reviewed the evidence. This was their Chief Forensic Officer, not someone in private practice giving an opposing opinion. This was their officer. So he gave evidence at the 1997 appeal, as did his boss, Tony Ansford. Leo told the court in his professional opinion the murder did not occur in that house and the body was never in the boot of that car. That is compelling evidence. And at the appeal, the Crown chose not to cross-examine him. So his opinion regarding Leanne Holland murder stands unopposed. The police review team interviewed Leo Freeney and he withdrew his opinion and changed his position. What? Just kidding. The review team did not interview Leo Freeney. I'll say that again. The review team did not interview Leo Freeney. Wouldn't he be the first person the review team interviewed to determine which direction their investigation was going to take? If the murder didn't occur in the house and the body was never in the boot of the car, they needed some idea of where they should be looking. We have found time and again when the review team could not disprove a defence claim, they simply ignored it. The Leo Freeney factor was ignored 
and the review team went back to the house and pulled the kitchen and bathroom apart in an effort to prove the murder did happen in the house. And what about Vishal Laxman, the prosecutor who refused to prosecute Graham Stafford at trial because he did not think he was guilty? And that was the first case he refused in over 30 years. What happened about him? Good point, Jamie. If the DPP had concerns about his guilt, then that was something the review team needed to know. Would that not be a concern to them? If the DPP did not think Graham Stafford was guilty, was it possible that he wasn't? Surely they would have said, let's ask the DPP what concerns they had so we have a better understanding of the case, a better understanding of the evidence. And guess what? Michelle Laxman was ignored as well. Getting back to Atkinson and the comment, it was Leanne Holland's stated desire to bleach her hair on the 23rd of September 1991 with the assistance of Graham Stafford. That is just so wrong on so many levels. It is easy to use a throwaway line like that when you have no evidence to support it. Yes, the subject was briefly discussed on the Monday morning between Graham and Melissa, Leanne and her father. But that's it. It was briefly discussed. There was no dye or peroxide found. There was zero evidence to support that claim. There was no window of opportunity. I wonder whether the scientists and the police considered the chemical reaction between peroxide and blood. The scientist who concluded there had been peroxide would have known about it without question. Did they not tell QPS or did QPS choose not to put it in review? Picture this. Leanne with a scalp full of peroxide. Stafford then repeatedly and savagely bashes her around the head with a hammer. Remember the phrase, inexplicably stopped? On YouTube, you'll find videos of the chemical reaction that occurs when you mix blood and peroxide. You end up with a huge amount of foam and the red colour is stripped out of the blood. It's a, it's a protein or something like that. It's stripped out. The blood becomes a clear liquid. It doesn't go away. It's still there. It's just not red. Hmm. So if you accept the claim that peroxide was added to her hair and then she was bashed, which we do not, by the way, then just explain how, when Leanne's body was found, the hair has a rich auburn colour about it. I'm not a scientist, and help me out. You can't have it both ways. You can't say there was rich auburn hair. Oh, but there was also peroxide. I'm not suggesting for a moment there would have been no blood visible, but I do suggest the hair colour would have been patchy. Some red colour in areas, no red colour in other areas, like a poor hair dye job. And if you recall the pathologist, she refused to believe the hair hadn't been dyed. Pretty sure it wasn't looking like a poor hair dye job. And that was the most compelling point of evidence Queensland Police had to prove Graham Stafford murdered Leanne Holland. I hope the other points are more convincing. I think Bob's five points potentially just became four. A new shower curtain was hanging in the bathroom of Leanne Holland's house. The curtain, which had been hanging for about two weeks, was examined in 1991 and found to have multiple spots of human blood. However, Technology then could not identify the blood group due to the small size of the spots. New DNA tests conducted has confirmed some of the blood projected onto the curtain belongs to Leanne Holland. First, the executive summary and review talk about a blood spray pattern on the shower curtain. But when you look at the actual conclusions, these spots of blood are invisible. 
So the scientists can't determine the direction of any spots. So they can't say it was a spray pattern. They certainly cannot use the word projected either, as used in the point above. And secondly, of these supposed 60 spots of blood, one was identified as matching Leanne. In determining that this one blood spot was Leanne's, the scientists did not include Craig Holland, her brother, only Terry, her father, and Melissa, her sister. It may well have been Craig's blood. He gave evidence he bled twice in that house. Ten spots were on the inner side of the curtain, the shower curtain, and 50 on the outer side. It doesn't take them anywhere because that is consistent with ordinary household use. For the shower curtain to be relevant, the murder had to occur in the bathroom. Leo Freni, what was that you said? Exactly. And further to that, the U-bend of the sink and the bath tested negative for blood. So did the lino tiles and underneath the lino tiles. Interestingly, I found a statement from one of Leanne's friends who had used the bathroom at Alice Street and told police that the water leaked through to the downstairs. No blood was found under the house. Fourth, the spray pattern is on the opposite side of the shower curtain as the original blood spots from the trial. So she was murdered in the bathtub and she was murdered out of the bathtub. (laughs) And these blood spots, you'll recall, were visible, unlike these new blood spots, in inverted commas, which are invisible. That only a tiny bit of visible blood got on one side, but 50 spots of blood that was cleaned up got on the other side. Finally, DNA on really old material has problems. It's been reported repeatedly when you do DNA on really old specimens that it should not be used for court purposes. Right. But it was necessary to use this particular test because of the age of the DNA sample. Yeah, old samples don't give good DNA results. Correct. Is this really more compelling evidence that Leanne Holland was murdered in the bathroom on Monday the 23rd of September 91? Seriously? A pattern was evident on Leanne Holland's left buttock and thigh. This had not been identified in 1991, but was evident in photographs taken at the time. This pattern was found to be identical to the boot mat of a Holden Gemini maker vehicle. The Gemini boot mat was unique to that make and model of vehicle. Graham Stafford had a Holden Gemini vehicle. Leanne Holland's blood has also been confirmed by DNA analysis in 2007 as being present in three locations within the boot of that vehicle. I was always very sceptical of this because it was the first time I'd ever heard that there were marks on the buttocks and thigh of the deceased. I noted that Dr Ashby did not mention these markings either in the real-time report she dictated during the autopsy or her later statement, and she did look for patterns. She spent time examining the tracings in blood on Leanne and described the marbling of the skin on Leanne's chest and stomach, and nowhere did she mention this checkered markings. There was a similar curious case of Henry Keogh in South Australia. He was convicted of drowning his fiancée in the bath. Crucial and pretty much only evidence were bruises on the deceased's lower legs, and these bruises were said to be made by Keogh's hand gripping the lower leg. For that to be a grip, the pattern and number of bruises and their position was vital. The deceased was cremated, so the only evidence that existed were the photographs of her legs taken at the autopsy. One of the bruises, a crucial thumb mark to prove a grip, 
was not visible in the photo. The only evidence for that was from the dodgy forensic scientist who said it was there. In this case, we have a well-respected forensic pathologist who conducted a very thorough examination of the body, noting marks at various places who did not mention these patterns. 20 years later, someone looking at the photograph apparently, oh, there's that word again, apparently sees these patterns that the doctor examined the actual body missed. Really? I don't buy it. There's definitely something fishy going on there. The review concluded the scientific officer kept everything from the boot except the boot map. And the Staffords took a photograph of the boot when the car was released to them. The mat was not in the car. Kind of reminds me of the hammer and the CCT video at the car wash. The key words in that report are, this pattern was found to be identical to the boot mat a Holden Gemini maker vehicle. The scientists actually said the patterns matched closely. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Remember the tire evidence at trial? The tyre impressions were said to be identical to the tyres on Graham Stafford's car, and then they weren't. It did not stop the judge from saying on 17 occasions when he was summing up to the jury, the impressions were identical. Now, here's the curious thing. The same photographer was used throughout the Holland murder on those first couple of days. In the review, the photographs of the tyre impressions were declared too poor for proper comparison, which conveniently let them off the hook, having to say they were not identical. After all, the defence used people in the tyre industry with a combined 60 years of experience who concluded the tyres did not match. Best to let that one go. But they could never admit the tyres did not match. If they do, and if they did, it has a knock-on effect. If the tyres didn't match Graham Stafford's car then the car was never at the crime scene. If the car was never at the crime scene, then the body was never in the boot. And how did he get the body to the dump site? And how did the maggot get in the boot? A real domino effect. So they had to stay focused on the goal. You have the situation where the photographs of the impressions were too poor for comparison, but the photograph of the boot mat was good enough for comparison. I just don't know. I I don't buy it. I think I'll wait for an independent scientific assessment of those marks before I decide. This theory has all the other weaknesses of the murder in the house theory, like why wasn't there more blood in the boot? If she was wrapped in something, what was it? The review moved away from the body wrapped in garbage bags, which made sense because that would never fly. They moved to he wrapped her in the shower curtain, which had been replaced one to two weeks ago. And the body was securely wrapped yet three drops of blood found their way out of the wrapping into the boot of the car, but no more. And no other blood dripped out onto the car boot, on other tools in the car, on his clothes or elsewhere. Again, I just don't buy it. 
if you believe all this stuff they're saying, I have a bridge for sale you may be interested in. And then how does Stafford get the body to the car without being noticed? The review report concluded the Cecil Hotel did not have a window looking straight across the road, which was clearly incorrect. I went into the Cecil Hotel in 2003. You could sit in the lounge bar and look straight over at the Holland House. As well, the house is clearly visible from the road and the intersection, as well as people going past. It's just nonsense to say he could have carried a body down the front stairs and put it in the boot in broad daylight and not be seen. And what about the quantity of belongings that he had in the boot of his car? Picture this. He removes all the gear and tools and other stuff, puts it down on the ground, and I suppose he's got the body down on the ground to start with, or he goes up and gets the body and brings it down, and then he lays it in the boot, and then he puts all the tools and other gear on top of it. And three drops of blood manage to get out and onto the tools, but they're not underneath the body because the body's laying on the mat. At what point and how does the blood get out of the wrapping onto the tool bag and the rag and the chucks? Because either, if it's not under the body, well, then there would be no pattern on the body. And if it's above the body, well, then it's not going to drip out. Yeah, sure. Just crazy. It's just crazy stuff. And then when he gets to the dump site, he moves everything again so he can remove the body and then place everything back in again. And miraculously, there's only these three drops of blood. Oh, and one maggot. Don't forget the maggot. (laughs) And as for this point where they said, Leanne Holland's blood has also been confirmed by DNA analysis in 2007 as being present in three locations within the boot of the car. Leo Freeney questioned how the blood got onto the three items in the boot of that car. He said transference was inconsistent with the claims made by the Queensland Police of how the blood got onto the tool bag, blanket and chucks cloth. All of this could have been clarified had the review team interviewed Leo, but alas, they chose not to. I'm actually confident they would not have liked what they heard. I'm beginning to understand why the DPP declined to prosecute. Yes, I agree. A written record by a work experience student confirmed the presence of the maggot in the boot of Graham Stafford's vehicle. The record in the student's work experience diary was recalled by extended members of that student's estranged family. This statement is unbelievable. Sigmund Freud would have a field day dissecting these comments. The author could not bring himself to say, yes, there are questions over the veracity of the maggot, but we are satisfied it existed. He jumps straight in on the attack. When your back is against the wall, the best defence is to attack. And as we said last episode, despite a tsunami of evidence that there was never a maggot in that boot, they go on with the same lame story that a work experience student saw it there and made note of it. There was a committal proceeding, a trial, three court appeals, and at no time was a work experience student ever raised when discussing the dodgy maggot. The report mentions she is seen in one photo. The review report meticulously records the photograph number and the date that the photo was taken for every photo mentioned in the review, except for that one photo. I'm sure there's a reason for that. I'm not sure what it is, but there'll be a reason. That student is not mentioned in statements or oral evidence of anyone when witnesses were asked, point blank, who was there when the maggot was spotted. And here is the best part. 
there was no DNA found in the crop of the digestive system of the maggot upon examination. No human DNA and no non-human DNA. On that basis, the maggot did not even come from the body. It's like the wheelie bin. He is being accused of a murder on non-evidence. In a retrial, the maggot would not even be mentioned because it cannot be connected to the murder. I recall that when the maggot was collected and first examined, they said its crop was full. In other words, it had it had food. It had a food source. It, now they're saying there was no human or non-human DNA there. What was it? We must remember the three scientists who called bullshit to that story. They said it wouldn't have survived 24 hours in the boot. Hopefully, Jamie, this is the last time the maggot is ever mentioned in this case. Well, I don't reckon it is. <laughs> I, just got a, I just got a feeling, mate. But I can see why QPS have been fighting tooth and nail to prevent the release of this report. And I guess Channel 7 would be wondering, did we get value for money? Full records were obtained as opposed to only maximum and minimum temperatures used in 1991. A detailed examination of those records, along with entomological research, has determined the approximate time of death was 23rd of September, 1991. The Queensland Police-owned forensic entomologist said initially the murder occurred early Tuesday morning or late Monday, with a preference for late Monday afternoon or early evening. And Graham Stafford had to have killed her before 4.30pm. Now, the review settled on death occurring around 10.15am on the Monday, with the bank teller evidence discounted, of course. The entomologist, after being given accurate temperatures, concluded death occurred on the Tuesday. She moved right away from the Monday, and this was their entomologist. She stated she preferred to give a day of death as opposed to a time of death. It seems now... Queensland police have obtained another entomologist who concluded from calculations of the growth rates of the maggot that death is now back on the Monday, not only on the Monday, before 11am on the Monday, which is really curious. But of course the review does not produce the calculations to show how they arrived at that time and date. We just have to accept their word for it. The appeal courts have previously dismissed the entomological evidence being able to provide an hour of death as having too many variables and too much uncertainty associated with it. For example, was the body exposed to the elements or was it in the boot? How long was it exposed? How long was it in the boot? And the review team concluded the body had been significantly exposed to the elements. There's just so many variables here, Jamie. Mm. But now the Queensland Police want us to accept the evidence without question that death occurred around 10.15am on the Monday morning. And we did say the review report was an untested document. To suggest that they can conclude the hour of day is ridiculous. The police review wrote seven lines on the timing of Leanne's death, a total of seven lines out of a 531-page report, and finished it by saying, and I quote, she was almost certainly murdered on the Monday. Yet the above point on the DPP stated the approximate time of death was the 23rd of September, which is correct. Can you conclude if the approximate time of death was the 23rd of September that it may have been the 22nd 
or it may have been the 24th. And you get closer to the actual time of death by talking to witnesses or excluding witnesses such as the bank teller and the woman who still claims she saw Leanne Tuesday morning. The review discussed taphomony evidence. Taphomony is the study of how organisms decay. And the evidence concluded Leanne had been deceased somewhere between 24 and 72 hours before discovery. 24 to 72 hours. So she was discovered at 2pm on the Thursday, which would mean the maximum was 2pm on the Monday. And yet the Queensland police are hell-bent on death occurring shortly after 10.15am on the Monday. I discussed this case with Ron Eddles in 2019. Do you know who he is, Jamie? Yeah, Australia's greatest detective. Correct, mate. Investigated over 300 murders. If you're not aware of who Ron Eddles is, Mr Google will help you. I gave him the crime scene photographs and other evidence and asked him if he would review it for me. He zeroed in on the maggot. There you go. It came up again. He also told me that when he was investigating murders, they never relied on scientists to give them a time of death, just a day of death, and then work it out from there. So that's the five points. Jamie, what are your thoughts? Has the Queensland Police persuaded you they have a solid case against Graham Stafford? It's not enough when you're trialling someone for murder, is it? Almost certain is not enough for murder. Yeah, I don't believe so. There are issues with all five points. And I agree with you. I don't think a jury would be persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt. But of course, when you add it with the mountain of other evidence against Graham Stafford... Uh, A mountain of evidence against Graham Stafford? What evidence is this? Well, how about a small hill of evidence? I'll take it. (laughs) And those five points are the best points they got. Let me run something past you. Is it possible the Queensland Police didn't really want the DPP to prosecute and so gave them five sketchy points of circumstantial and so-called forensic evidence? It's certainly possible, mate. They certainly couldn't recommend not prosecuting, but to maintain the moral high ground, they had to recommend prosecution. It's a happy ending, right? So if those five points are indicative of the entire review report, I would not be putting my name to having written it. I'd be too embarrassed. Now, this next subject, Jamie, it's off point. We've finished with the five points, okay? I was preparing a script for the next episode and I was starting to look at Mark Thomas Noble. He was a guy who was convicted of murder in Tasmania in 2005. He's the one I wrote to and asked if he's involved in the murder of Leanne Holland, but naturally I never received a reply. And you may recall a lady contacted us around 2006 and told us this amazing, (laughs) crazy story. Here I am scripting away for the next episode and in the review report there is not one word, not one word about Mark Thomas Noble. Whatever is in there has been redacted, which aroused my curiosity. We have no idea of what the review team did or didn't do in relation to Mark Thomas Noble. The lady who contacted us in 2006 listened to the podcast in 2021 and contacted me in November 2021, 12 months ago. And I saved her details and I called her this week. Hi, Graham Crowley. 
think I'm on my phone. You have my number saved in your phone. I'm impressed. I did. I did. I thought maybe I'll hear from you again. I just listened to the latest podcast. What did you think? I thought it was awesome. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, yeah. The next one will come out at the end of this week. There's some interesting stuff coming out in that as well. Oh, I don't know what you're going to say, but I hope it's something positive for Graham. Yes, it is, and it's casting more concern and more doubt and more confusion over that police review. Yes, terrible corruption. Yeah. It's almost 12 months since you called me. Wow. Time flies, eh? Yeah. And I'm doing some work on Mark Thomas Noble. Oh, yes. I'm looking at him for an episode. Yeah. And I thought I'd just touch base with you, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Did the police review team interview you? Yes, they did. I had a card somewhere for a long time. I could probably find it. The name of the office is not important. No. Did they take a statement off you? I really can't remember if they took a statement, but what they did do was they brought down identical photo of Selena and the girl that I was telling you about. I don't yeah. know if that's really her name. And they brought me down like this sheet with these women on it. And I did pick out one woman, number seven, who was on the list, and I'm... Um, was 100% sure that was her. So she must have been locked up at some point for them to have had a photo of her. But she, she was older. It was like 20 years older, the photo, from when I knew her. Yeah, of course. And then they showed me this other mug sheet with photos of men on it. Now, I only really met Mark Noble once. And what I did, do remember about him was there was nothing significant really about him. He was, he was skinny. He wasn't very tall, probably only, well, I'd say, because I'm only five foot, he was probably only like five seven or five eight tall. He had like all these random sort of tattoos, you know, jail-looking tattoos on him. But there, there was nothing really significant. He just sort of had brown hair, nothing about him that stood out. Yeah. Dirty clothes, dirty jeans. That's about all I remember. I'm mean, using drug addict. Yeah. He didn't say much. Yes. Just sort of stood back and listened to everybody else at the time that I didn't meet, which was really overfed. Do you know if the police review team interviewed Selena? Well, they said to me that they had spoken to her, the person I bought that, that I had named, they didn't tell me the name, and she said she knew nothing about what, what anything about anything. Oh, but, okay. you know, that's exactly what she would say. Yeah. That's predictable. Yeah, sure. But, you know, like I, I, remember I sent you a thing about her daughter, Chris, because I found old photographs at school. Because I thought about it and I thought, you know, my son Chris was in the same class as her daughter and that's how I got that Christy. Yep. So I don't know if that was her daughter, but, daughter, but it certainly looked like her, the Facebook Crystal, because her name was actually Crystal. I used to call her Christy. Okay. Because I know you were never able to tell us her name before. Well, I knew her as Selena. Yeah. And um, that's how everyone in Kabulcha knew her as Selena. was a time, Chrissy, this is one thing that I do remember, is we went to her mother's and 
her mother said to her, oh, because her mother called her Elizabeth. And then her mother said, oh, and she said, Selena. And she goes, oh, Selena Dallas it. And then her little her daughter, Christy, who was getting naughty at the time, started going, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. <laughs> so uh, I started to think, isn't it? You know, that basically was the name Elizabeth. Yeah. Because her mother did say, oh, Selena is it now. So it's because she used to change her name. Yeah. You know what else I remembered too? Is they used to talk about Cecil all the time. And you know what? It only occurred to me that I always thought Cecil was some person. They were referring to was the Cecil Hotel, of course. Yeah, in Goodna. In Goodna was yeah. where they used to drink a lot. Oh, really? And I was under the impression that you shared a house with Selena and Mark Noble. Was that not the case? No. No, he was in prison when I moved in. Oh. I split up with my relationship and I moved in to share the house. She was... She was six weeks behind in her rent because when he went to prison, she couldn't pay her rent. Yeah, right. And so that's how, because I only met him sort of once earliest sociably, like over the fence having a beer. That's how I knew Selena. Yeah. And then when I had problems and I knew she was on her own, uh, I went up to her house. She said, sure, you come on, move in. And then we were there together then for the next few months. You know, I told you what we got up to. Yeah. And... Can you just tell me again what she told you that he told her? It was always the, the I always remember the first thing she said. She was really scared. She was really scared. She said she told me he killed someone before. Because I, I said, "Don't you stupid? He's not going to kill you." And she said, "You don't understand. He's killed someone before." And I was like, "Well, if he did that, he would have got caught." And she said, "No, he'll never get caught." He got away with it. You know, she was telling me he got away with it. And I'm saying, well, he'll get caught. If he murdered someone, he'll get caught. And I said, and then I sort of said, well, what murder? You know, push it up. I remember, and she told me, near the beehives. And that didn't mean anything to me at the time because I didn't watch the news. I wasn't up with people getting murdered. Mm. And for years, I always remembered the near the beehives, near the beehives. And then I was, I, I, she, she went on to kind of tell me that he did it like to show her what he could do to her. And also, she used to run with this gang. And one of the gang members told her, this is why she said she knows he did it, that he did this. And then he was, this gang member told her that they were all forced to do something to the body to like incriminate themselves so they couldn't ever tell about it. So they all had to, like, do something. Mm. And there, there was more than one person involved. It was a long time ago. Now, yeah, the review concluded that Mark Noble wasn't involved in the murder of Leanne. Well, I don't believe that. But he was involved in the murder of a woman down the south side of Brisbane. Yes, but he probably did that too. Near a rubbish dump. Do you know anything about that murder? No. It's all been redacted in the review report we got. Someone's really got confused when they've said near the beehives to near the rubbish dump down the south side of Brisbane. Yes. Well, she definitely, the one thing that I swear by is the beehives. You know, that, and that, I racked my brain, I murdered near the beehives. I didn't even know what beehives she was talking about. I was never, never in good in the area. But 
she was from Goodna prior to moving to Caboolture. How do you and know that? White ambulance. She used to tell me how they did crime in this white ambulance. Mm. You know, the whole gang used to get in the back and hide in it. And they used to do home invasions. There has to be, like, police records of, of shit that happens like that. Yeah. All right. I, I really know what I can add, but I it all goes well. I'm looking forward to the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks for your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Any time, any time at all. Okay, thanks. Take care. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Interesting story, mate. A very interesting story. They are serious, incredible allegations. We know Mark Thomas Noble was responsible for two murders. That makes him a serial killer. So why not three? And it's just frustrating that we have no idea of what the police did or didn't do in relation to him. When that Selena said, oh, I have no knowledge of what you're talking about, did they continue on or did they just say, oh, well, that's the end of it. There's nothing to see here. Move on. Or did they obtain answers to these questions, Amy? Did they ever determine if Noble lived in Goodna in 1991 or before? Did Noble drink at the Cecil Hotel? Did he or Selena own an old ambulance, an old white ambulance? Did Noble know pedophile Pete or Sean McFedron? Was Noble ever in prison at the same time as pedophile Pete? Did Noble or Selena know Trisha Lynch or her parents? And the list just goes on. My point is this. Was the review genuinely and legitimately trying to determine who killed Leanne Holland or were they just shoring up the case against Graham Stafford? And how they treated the question of Mark Thomas Noble's potential involvement will go a long way to answering that question. This is a ridiculous situation where we can't get the unredacted review to proof it, to check it. Channel 7 have an unredacted copy of the report. If they are truly interested in justice for Leanne, how about sending us the details around Noble and Serena? Okay, we know you believe Graham Stafford's guilty because the police review report said so. How about sending us the details? That's it for Happy Ending. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next time where we drill down again into more conclusions reached by the review team to determine whether those conclusions pass the pub test. And a final word, if I may. Attorney General Shannon Fenneman, do your job. Order an inquest into the murder of Leanne Holland. One has never been held. An inquest is required under Queensland law, as you well know. I do hope you're not breaking your own laws, Attorney General. True. Well said. Well, thank you, Graham, and thank you to the listeners. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to it. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. 
Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 16mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. And a special thanks to Yamaha Music Australia, Audio Technica Australia, Zoom Australia, Isotope and Sound Theory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.